You can be seated. Uh, I want to welcome you again to Cornerstone Baptist Church tonight. It's good to be back with you all, and uh, it's good to see all of your smiling faces tonight as we worship together. We're going to be in Acts chapter 16, and we're going to talk on the subject matter of the lessons from prison, lessons from prison. I, I think uh, you'll remember this story of the Philippian jailer in the, uh, in the Acts of the Apostle Paul uh, quite well, but uh, we're going to look at it afresh tonight and uh, see what we might discover. A couple of things I want to highlight ever so quickly, and uh, that is that uh, this morning we we handed out these postcards uh, for Friday night uh, for the men and boys uh, 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 cookout and, and bonfire and just kind of get together. Um, and the address listed on there is the address for the property. Unfortunately, when you put that into to your uh, phone, uh, Siri does not agree and uh, she wants to take you somewhere else. So we're working on a resolution to that, uh, and that resolution is going to be tomorrow. We're going to send out an email, a Twitter blast, Facebook, on the app as well, that will give you actual directions to the place uh, so that you can find it. If you were there with us last year, men, uh, you can, you can pr- pretty much remember it uh, uh, by, by heart. Uh, look for signs as you're going, and we'll have some signs up to help you find your way. Uh, but uh, for some reason, uh, Google Maps and Roger Austin do not agree where he lives, okay? So we're going we're gonna to get that resolved and uh, get that out there tomorrow. Again, also want to remind you men uh, and, and, and boys uh, to uh, set aside on your calendar November 16th and 17th, that Friday evening and Saturday morning for a men's weekend we're going to have here. We're going to have the Jason Lovins Band with us as well as Dr. John Noble come and preach. And uh, you'll also hear a testimony uh, that weekend that I uh, think will bless your heart as well and uh, it'll be a good weekend it's nothing uh, you know elaborate or anything like that it's just an opportunity for us as men uh, bring our sons and and grow in the Lord together and uh, I think you'll uh, be blessed by it so make sure you set aside that weekend and then of course Dr. Noble as well as uh, the Jason Lovins band will stay around and be with us Sunday morning and then again Sunday night and so uh, we're excited about that on the 18th Uh, other announcements lots of them in the bulletin I do want to uh, uh, correct one thing. I didn't even know that that basket was out there for pastor appreciation. So no, I didn't pay Dr. Loggins to do that. Uh, but I do want to say that we have multiple pastors on staff. And so uh, please take this time this month. Uh, uh, listen, it would bless my heart even more if you bless them in some way. So sometime this weekend uh, or this month, uh, take some time, grab a card, uh, put a little gift in there and drop it in there for them. And we'll make sure that they all get it. And uh, they, you know, we, the bottom line is we could not do what we do as a church if it wasn't for such a great staff that works together and cooperates here. And, and not just among our pastors, but amongst our uh, volunteer staff and, and, uh, and, our, and our, also our administrative assistant, Ms. Celeste. Just thankful for each and every one of them. And, and, uh, and so uh, I, I hope you'll take a few moments to uh, take, take a few moments this month to let your pastors know how much you appreciate them. All right. I'm, uh, we're going to collect an offering tonight. I'm going to ask if, um, if Brother Robert and Gary would collect that offering for me. Since you guys are the furthest back, uh, I'm going to make you walk all the way up here. I've got an offering bag here and here, and uh, we're going to go ahead and collect our offering tonight. Again, we're going to look at Acts chapter 16, and really we're going to look at verse 16 all the way to the close, but we're going to spend special attention beginning in verse 25. And it says, In about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. 
When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do no harm to yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, and we'll end here tonight, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved and you and your household. You know the rest of the story. Not only was the Philippian jailer saved, but also his whole household. And then a strange thing takes place as they are released from this prison. Uh, As we pray tonight, I want to say a specific prayer for not only Pastor A that we mentioned last week, but I also want to say a specific prayer for Brother Brad Hughes. You may remember Brad came and did our music for us uh, at our Global Impact Week. Uh, A lot of folks don't realize you've been watching the news with all of Hurricane Michael and all of the devastation, but a lot of people have not really realized that Georgia was hit far worse than anybody else. the, the beach towns uh, certainly were wiped out, and, and it's hard to compare. But the, the difference is that Georgia is not used to receiving hurricanes that come up the Gulf, and, and specifically hurricanes that grow as they come inland instead of decreasing. And so uh, just putting it frankly, they were unprepared for uh, what, uh, what happened next. And if you look at the power outages, there are, there are twice as many people out in Georgia as there are in all the other states impacted combined. And Brother Brad and his family, uh, as well as others, lost basically everything they have, and they're trying to put it all together. So we want to remember him as a personal connection to that storm, but also all of those folks that are going through those things. I saw Missouri disaster relief down this week, as well as Kentucky disaster relief, and I'm thankful for our cooperative dollars going to support and help uh, those efforts. But let's pray tonight. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity that you've given to us and for the opportunity you've given to us to intercede on behalf of other saints and and other folks. You give us this moment, moments like these, where we can come before you and and lay our burdens as well as the burdens of our brothers and sisters down and ask for your help. And we do that tonight for all of our brothers and sisters, Florida, Carolinas, Georgia, uh, across the coast there and, uh, and upwards, all those impacted by Hurricane Michael. Father, we pray for a speedy recovery. We know that these things take time, take energy, Um, But we just pray for a speedy recovery. We pray for our institutions, our organizations that have come in to try to help and help uh, begin the process of rebuilding. And I I pray that in a moment like this, opportunities of rebuilding are opportunities to testify of the gospel itself, which is the great rebuilder. As our lives are laid before you in their shambles, you remake us into new people. And so this is a great opportunity to see the gospel at work. And I thank you for men and women that serve the Missouri Disaster Relief and others across the states of of this great nation that serve uh, because of the cooperative funding uh, that is given through this local institution, this local church. And Father, would you bless them in their efforts and would you meet the needs of those who are hurting tonight. We also pray for Pastor A and his family there uh, in across the other side of the globe tonight and their continual turmoil and the struggles that they're going through. We pray for their safety, their protection, and that the gospel witness would not burn out right there in that little uh, persecuted place of the world. We pray for blessings upon them. We pray for these offerings tonight that you would bless them and use them for your kingdom expansion. In Jesus' precious name, amen. cross of Christ and marvel at his love divine God's perfect son was sacrificed 
to make me righteous in God's eyes. This rather stems I cannot know, but I can glory in his blood. The Lord most high has bowed down low and poured on me his glorious love and poured on me his glorious love. The river depths I cannot know, but I can glory in his flood. The Lord most high has bowed down low and poured on me his glorious love and poured on me his glorious love. And poured on me his glorious love. I was waiting for the nod because on my schedule it says one more song. I, I'm not going to sing it. You going to sing it? All right, all right. If you have your Bibles with you tonight, let's turn to the book of Acts and the 16th chapter. The book of Acts and the 16th chapter. And as you're turning there, I'm certain you have heard this story before about Paul and this episode, this infamous story uh, of Paul with a Philippian jailer. And while you're turning there, uh, as I was preparing for tonight's message, I got to thinking about other infamous stories. There's all kinds of infamous stories out there, aren't there? Some of them infamous for the right reasons, and others maybe not so much, right? Uh, but I love infamous stories. One of the infamous stories I uh, particularly was fond of until they made a, a terrible movie about it was the story about the Battle of Thermopylae, which was the story about how about 300 Spartans held off over 150,000 invading Persians by the order of Xerxes until they made a movie about it that was uh, not fit for uh, children, uh, men, uh, women, uh, anybody under the age of 100. Uh, I, 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 was, uh, I, was, I, I was enthralled by that story about how this group of, uh, of, of mighty men stood in, 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 in contrast or stood against the mighty uh, might of the Persian Empire as it was expanding through Greece. And, and when nobody else would stand, these men stood together and, uh, and somehow used their strength and their fighting ability and the land itself, their surrounding regions, to hold off over 100,000, some scholars say 150,000 invading Persians for three days, giving their countrymen time to get ready and get their navy ready uh, to begin an assault that would drive the Persians back. It would be Persia's first and greatest defeat as they tried to expand under Xerxes into the Grecian world. And so powerful story. It's an infamous story. Then there are infamous stories like the one you might hear down at Southwest Baptist University about a former student by the name of Chris Guffey, right? Uh, stories that are infamous for the wrong reasons. I, uh, several years ago, Miss Kelly and I were pastoring down at Hermitage First Baptist Church, and one of our great joys during that time was to have a group of college students that would meet in our home on Wednesday nights. We would meet at nine o'clock in the evening because we didn't have kids then, and, and it was okay 
okay to stay up late. And they'd come over, and what started out as a group of uh, 15, maybe, uh, college students, I suppose, grew into something like 75. You've not lived until you had 75 college students in your house, and especially when you had a house the size of ours. And they would just spread out all over the floor in the living room into the dining room and be sitting throughout the kitchen on the tile. And it was just a great time together as we would study. And, And nothing specific about it. We didn't have music or any of those things. We just opened the Bible every week, had a little bit of food, and just hung out together and spent time growing together. And we did that for, I guess, about three years and really enjoyed that time. And one of the things that I told them was a story uh, about my time when I was in college, because I was foolish enough uh, to think that the statute of limitations had expired. And one of the things that happened when I was in college, because I like to have fun with folks, was a group of us, a group of uh, buddies of mine, all decided to uh, get into the student union before it closed up one night, and we hid in the ceiling tiles, in the, in the, uh, in the ceiling, and we waited for the security to lock it all up. And what started out as a plan just of some general mischief to play some Aerosoft in there and, and have some fun and then try to get out before uh, uh, dawn and, 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 you know, and all that stuff, then began to grow over time, right? And uh, the next thing we knew, we had decided there was this little theater in the, in the in student union known as the Davis Theater, and it was formerly where they would put on plays and stuff. It seated about 100 people. We had a class in there, my group of buddies, we all had a class in there at 8 a.m. on Tuesday mornings, that was a psychology class, and we all decided that it would be great fun to go in that night and unscrew all of the chairs in the auditorium and turn them around backwards so that when the professor came in, he could walk in and all of the student body would be facing the other direction. And so we did. We succeeded. We hid in the ceiling tiles as soon as everything was locked up and we were, knew we were safe. We climbed out. We got into the Davis Theater. And all night long, painstakingly, we unbolted every chair in the auditorium, turned them around, and bolted them right back in. Listen, I have never been so excited and tired simultaneously for a prank in all of my life. We snuck out and, and we uh, set off, you had to set off an alarm on your way out because all the doors had a, had a motion sig- uh, signal on them. And so we set off the alarm and ran as fast as we could, all went to bed. It was the first time we ever all showed up for class on time in my entire collegiate career. We showed up and we're sitting down and one by one students are coming in. We wanted to be the first ones there. And they walked in one by one and they all just kind of stared like, what in the world is this about, Right. And then everybody kind of just in small laughter started chuckling to themselves as we faced to the back. And then the professor comes walking in at 8 a.m. sharp, and he couldn't help but just sit there and laugh about it. I was telling the college students about this experience. And by the way, we didn't break anything that, you know, there was no reason. Just put your self-righteousness to the side. It was just all in good fun. The professor comes in and he's laughing about it. I'm telling the college students about this a couple of years removed. And one of the students goes, that was you? I've heard that story. I heard about what you guys did. They have no idea who did that. Well, if they didn't then, they do now because we've recorded tonight's story, uh, sermon. Uh, there, there are infamous stories for good and for bad reasons, right? And tonight's one of those infamous stories and it's one of those for a good reason. It's a story about Paul and this Philippian jailer that we don't even have a name for, and yet he lives on in the history of Christianity as one of the most beautiful, eloquent uh, conversion stories in all of Scripture. 
It begins, we're told in verse number 16, as Paul and Silas have come into a place, uh, they are moving their way throughout the, wor- the, the known world and they've come to a place. And as they come there, Paul is going around preaching the gospel and apparently there was a little girl uh, who had some sort of evil spirit that was in her. Her masters, this slave girl, had decided that they were going to make a profit off of her, uh, her, off of her evil spirit, off of her mag- magical power, out of her sorcering ability. And so they were making a profit out of her. And yet Paul seems to get, I'll use the ESV translation, annoyed with her presence. Because everywhere Paul goes, this slave girl goes around and follows Paul in verse 17, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Luke goes on to say that she would continue to do this for many days, and eventually Paul, getting annoyed, would cast out that spirit, cast out that conjuring spirit, that demonic force, and demand that it leave her, and immediately... It does, and the girl's whole countenance changes. No longer is she any good for her masters because now her masters say, well, the thing that had brought her power has been delivered out of her. And you you can kind of see the the cruelty and the coldness of their hearts because in this moment, they're not saying to themselves, you know, we didn't consider how this girl was doing these things. We didn't consider the, the, the consequence. We didn't consider the weight, the power that was upon her. All we considered was the money that we were making. And, and what they do is they get enraged and they take Paul and Silas before the, the local authorities and they drag them there according to verse number 19 and they tell these people that Paul is a Jew who is creating mischief in the city. He's creating problems. He's creating disturbances. And specifically, they knew how to get the Roman government's attention. They said he is saying things which are incompatible with Roman law. In other words, what they were basically saying in this moment, they were accusing Paul and Silas of sedition. They were accusing Paul and Silas of treason. They were accusing them of being two men who were preaching a message, uh, uh, promoting a religion that would lead the people in revolt against Rome. Now, nothing could be further from the truth. And yet, that is exactly what the people would say. I I think years later of uh, the great apologist Justin who would stand on behalf of the people and he would defend Christians before the Roman consuls and the Roman authorities and he would uh, uh, bestow upon them, he would lavish upon them the virtues of the Christian religion to 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 a government, to a citizenship. And basically, the first arguments for Christian apologists was that Christians are good people for any nation to have have. Boy, we could, we could use such arguments today, couldn't we? We're living in a time when, when Christians are continually being told we need to go to the corners of our society. We need to be put off to the side because we are uh, invaluable to the discussion. In fact, we are detriment to the discussion. In this moment, basically, this is the argument that is used. It's an age-old argument. They say these guys are real problems. Verse 22, the crowd apparently seeking a mob mentality joined in in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. Now I want to stop there for a moment. What they're doing in this moment is absolutely illegal. You know, first they had uh, appealed to Roman law to create the illusion that these men were a danger, but now they break Roman law 
Because they're not allowed to bring about this type of judgment on somebody who's a Roman citizen. And Paul was that. We're going to see this come full circle in their release. But I just need to make that point at this moment that isn't it interesting how people will use whatever means necessary to bring about the end result that they want. If using the law brings about the result that they want, then they'll use the law. But if not using the law, if breaking the law is the end result that they, that they need, then that's what they'll use if that's what's necessary. Because in the end, the means are not uh, important. It is always the ends that are the justification, right? That's what this mob had in their minds. Verse 23, And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer, unnamed, To keep them safely, having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and he fastened their feet in the stocks. Okay, the scene is set. Paul and Silas are charged with a crime they did not commit. They're beaten, they're, uh, they're, they're, they're beaten uh, to a point where they may not have been uh, barely recognizable. They had inflicted great blows upon them, Luke says. They're given an order to spend the night in jail, to spend the night in prison. And in fact, we're told that they were taken into the inner part of the prison, denoting that they were taken in where the most violent of offenders would live, right? Where they would be. And they were thought to be such problem problem makers that they were actually put in stocks themselves. Now, this could be a moment for a pity party if ever we had them. But if Paul had had a pity party in this moment, his story would not have been infamous. It would have been ordinary, right? Because that's exactly what we expect most of us to do in times like that. I don't know about you, but it's easy when things are not going my particular way to begin to self-loathe a little bit, to begin to think about all of the injustice in the world, right? To think about all the things that I perceive as injustice, whether they are or are not, that have happened to me in my existence. And specifically in this case, we're not talking about a suffering or a persecution that is the direct result of bad choices or a miscommunication or a difference of opinion. We are specifically talking about suffering or persecution that is the direct result of doing the right thing. There's nothing in the world that's worse, is there? You do the right thing and your coworkers, your friends, your family, they turn on you. Not because there's a miscommunication. No, all sides have patently understood where we're at. Not because there's a simple disagreement as to why we're where we're at, but rather because you did what they didn't want you to do, regardless of whether it's right or wrong. What makes the story live out in Christian history as infamy is what transpires next. And you know the story well. Basically what happens, and I'll not reread all of the verses again just for time's sake, but what happens is Paul is brought into this prison. And the first thing we're told is that he's sitting there in the prison. He begins to study the scriptures, to pray, to meditate, and we're even told he was singing hymns. And all the traditionalist Baptists said, amen. We knew they were there somewhere, right? You might imagine he was singing in that moment, great is thy faithfulness, Lord unto me. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. He's singing there, and he's living in the bowels of the prison. It's not a prison like our prisons are today, for good, bad, or indifferent. It's a vile place, and he's sitting there in the bowels with the most violent of offenders, 
And he's singing songs of praise to the Lord, praying and meditating. And I imagine telling the other prisoners about his experience with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're told in this moment, are you ready? They were listening. They were listening. Sometimes when I go to prison with James and Christy, I will open up my remarks by saying something about, uh, you know, it's good to see everybody here and you're a captive audience, right? And they normally laugh about that and there's kind of a joke and I will make comments about, you know, the difference between you and the people I preach to every Sunday morning that you know you're guilty, right? And, uh, and, and we kind of have a few jokes and things like that. And, but what transpires oftentimes next For good, for bad, or indifferent, no man can measure what's in the heart of a man. But what transpires next, oftentimes in my experience, is a hunger to hear something. A hunger to hear some source of hope, some source of healing, something that will transport them from where they are physically into a new location. I don't know, it may be supposing too much in this moment, but I think this perhaps is what the Apostle Paul is having take place in this moment, and Luke recording it for us, is that these men were probably men whose destinies were not looking all that great, and they wanted to be transported from the despair, the pit of despair where they were, into something greater. But when Paul sang about Jesus, prayed to Jesus, and told them about Jesus, something transported them, at least emotionally and spiritually, away from the prison they were in. Prisons aren't normally quiet places. Even in the times that we've been there and when everything's gone smooth, there's always noise kind of going around. Even while you're preaching, there's noise going around. There are guards that come in periodically to make sure that everything's going the way that it's supposed to be. The men who are believers who are excited about what Christ has done are excited. There's, there's lots of noise going around. But Luke says in this moment, there was a certain element of peacefulness that was taking place. A peacefulness, like we talked about this morning, that only Christ can bring. That as Christ was being exalted and exclaimed and glorified in this moment, there was a stillness that was falling on the air. It's like every Sunday morning and Sunday night at Cornerstone Baptist Church, right? People were bowing their heads, perhaps in prayer. But they were listening. They wanted to know. Then all of a sudden, we're told that uh, in the middle of this worship service, somewhere around midnight, the ground began to shudder beneath them. The ground began to quake, and it quaked so hard that the doors of the prison themselves were sprung open. Now think about that for a moment. Normally normally aren't prison bars made not to spring open? (laughs) I mean, they're made not to open up with great ease. They're made to stay together. They're made specifically, let me say this, to withstand such things as this. And yet, apparently, the earth shook so violently on this night that the doors themselves flung open. That would dissolve your stillness, right? That would dissolve your peace. That would dissolve the, 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 the relative calmness and serenity that's in the room in that moment. And yet that's the opposite of what we see. The believer, Paul, the Apostle Paul, is here in this moment singing hymns. There's a stillness that falls on the place. The ground begins to shake, the doors open up, and there's still calmness. You say, how do you know that it's calmness? Because a little voice begins to cry out when the earth stops shaking 
And that voice is the voice of the jailer in charge. And he says to himself, I am a dead man because all of these people must have escaped. And Paul, Luke says, heard that voice. Now listen, I've never been in an earthquake. I've gone through a couple of tornadoes, one while we were here, and, and we've come out of shelter, and I've, I've experienced some sorts of natural disasters like that. I can tell you that a lot of times immediately following such events, there's not a stillness. There are people running around, they're asking questions, they're checking on everybody to see who's alive, who's not alive, who's okay, who's not okay, and so on and so forth. And yet in this moment, that stillness, that peace that comes with Christ still rested on the place. The jailer exclaims that he's in big trouble because surely the prisoners would have escaped. And yet, Paul cries out, no, we are all still here. Think about that for a moment. I've been to prison with James and Christy many times, Rick and Arlene before them and others before them. And I can tell you right now, even in the chapel, we do not throw the doors wide open. <laughs> we, it's not that we don't trust anybody, it's that we don't trust anybody, Right? If you throw the doors wide open, somebody's going to try to get out, right? And in fact, one might even be spiritual about all this and say, well, God has set us free, right? I can hear them singing now the original Chain Breakers song, right? He's a prison-breaking Savior. Let's get out of here, right? Run for the doors. And yet, in the stillness of those moments of Paul meditating, praying, calling out to Christ, teaching about Christ, singing hymns of praise to Christ, some hearts were already beginning to get transformed in their midst so that when the doors threw open, nobody tried to run out the door. It wasn't like Cornerstone Baptist Church on a Sunday morning, right? When the doors were thrown open, everybody just kind of sat around. They stayed for a little while. The jailer screams out. Paul says, no, we're all still here. Don't do any harm to yourself. And somehow the Philippian jailer walks in And in this moment, something struck in his soul. I don't know what it was. I don't know if it was the fear of the earthquake itself. But something struck in his soul. And we're told that he got down on his knees before Paul. And he asked life's most fundamental question. What must I do to be saved? And Paul didn't say, well, you need to go buy yourself a three-piece suit. Make it to church on a Sunday morning. Paul said... Believe in the name of the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. I'm going to skip ahead and tell you some of the rest of the events that unfolded and come back to this in a moment. But what happens next is the Philippian jailer is saved, his entire household is saved. The next morning, the magistrates, the rulers and the authorities, they find out a little bit of what has gone on. And they send word to the jailer to set these men free. And Paul says, no, we're not going to leave. If we're going to be free, they're going to come down here and set us free themselves because we were Roman citizens and treated poorly. In that moment, the magistrates, were told, became very afraid because they realized that the penalty for striking another Roman citizen, citizen without, just, uh, without justice having been dis, uh, declared was death itself. So they feared they would lose their uh, places of power and might even be killed themselves. And so they come down to the jail and they apologize, Luke says, to the men, and they set them free. This is the lesson of the Philippian jailer that we've heard before. Now here, let me ask the question that I asked this morning. What can we learn from such stories? What can we learn from an infamous story like this? And I'm going to give it to you in three parts tonight, or two parts tonight. The first thing I think we can learn tonight 
is that there is always purpose in suffering for Christ. There's always purpose in suffering for Christ. That's the most obvious principle that we can learn from this tonight. And, and I, I think it's well worth uh, making the notice of and making mention of. I want to backtrack again and remind you that I said that these men were suffering not because of just a happenstance or uh, bad luck or unfortunate circumstances or because they had done something wrong and God was punishing them. They were specifically suffering. They were specifically being persecuted for doing the right thing, for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when we talk about this, let's not confuse it with other forms of suffering. Now, I want to be clear, as you've heard me say before, there's purpose in all suffering. There's purpose in every type of suffering, every trial, every temptation, and so on and so forth. But tonight, I want to specifically speak about the purpose that is in this type of suffering, which is namely suffering for proclaiming the goodness, the majesty, the, the awness, the wonderfulness, the magnificence of Jesus Christ and his power to forgive sins. There were three people who were immediately impacted by this type of suffering. The first was the prisoners themselves, as we already mentioned, right? This, in this moment, they, you, we don't know what their prayers must have been. Some of them might have even been waiting for their, their, their head to be separated from their shoulders. We don't know what kind of prayers might have been offered before the Apostle Paul and Silas show up in this moment. It's been said before that uh, everybody's an atheist until they get into a, a foxhole in Vietnam, right? There's no atheist that exists there, right? Because when we face that type of scenario, life and death, when we face that type of uh, trial, temptation, listen, all of a sudden we need all the help we can get, right? And so it's without wonder that Oscar Wilde on his deathbed, a man who lived his entire existence wanting uh, all the pleasure that life had to offer, asked for a priest to come and to pray with him because when you're in that moment... All of a sudden, all of those things you might have espoused before begin to fall away and you want to know, is there really a God who exists? And if he does, what is he going to do with me? Several years ago, a member of our church asked me to go and meet with a friend of theirs at the hospital. And they said, now, listen, pastor, it's not going to be good because I've tried to talk to them about Jesus for years and years and years, and, and they just won't listen. They've, in fact, almost been aggressive, almost violent towards me. And I said, good, sounds like just the person I want to go see today, right? So I went down to the hospital, and I walked in, and I sat down with the, with the, with the lady, and we began to discuss, and I told her who I was, and she said, I know why you're here, and she called out the church member by name, and she said, I guarantee you, they sent you down here, right? And I said, absolutely, absolutely. No denying that, no sense in trying to play a game here in this moment. No, absolutely. And she says, well, I just want you to know that I am not going to trust in Christ. And I said, certainly that is within your realm of decision and possibility. But I want you to know I'm here to do the best I can to love you in these last few moments and share with you the hope of eternal life. We spent a couple of days talking to each other over the next couple of months. And I wish I could say that she responded to Christ and trusted in him. To the best of my knowledge, she never did. But I can tell you that as those conversations went on, the aggressiveness came down. As the sickness went on, as the final day got closer, all of a sudden we were absolutely able to have some meaningful conversations 
about who God is and what he expects of us. These men, some of them probably, are just waiting on their execution date. And you might imagine it's reasonable to assume they are praying in such moments. God, if you exist, would you send us a message? Would you send us some sort of notice? Paul and Silas then become the answer to that prayer. Listen to me, beloved, tonight, your suffering is the answer to someone else's prayer. When Paul and Silas show up, they have an opportunity to minister to these men in a way that they never could have had outside the prison. There's another group of people that they're touching, and that is obviously the jailer. This jailer gets an opportunity to experience eternal life, and we're told that not only was he affected by the message that Paul preached, but also his entire family was affected as they came to Christ as well. So, again, God used this moment of suffering. God purposely put Paul in this place, not only to help the prisoners, but secondly, to help a jailer. And then thirdly, I believe tonight that he also did it for the community as a whole, for the testimony that Paul had. When we get to the end of the story, and Paul wants for the magistrates not to dismiss them in private, but to come and to publicly apologize and dismiss them in that way, There's a reason behind that. We're going to get into, there's actually a couple of reasons behind it. We're going to get into one of those reasons in just a moment. And I promise we'll go quickly, but we'll get into one of those reasons in a moment. But one of the reasons is because I think he wants to take every opportunity afforded to him to stand in the presence of the whole and to speak with clarity the gospel of Christ. And in this moment, his testimony about how he's dealing with all this suffering, all this persecution, all that's going on, listen, is a testimony that must be making an impact on the people who are watching. This morning, I had the opportunity to see a young lady that uh, I had the opportunity to coach this year, and, and, I, and, I, I, and I think she's just one of the sweetest young ladies, but, but I, I know some of the, the difficulties of her life and her existence, and I know some of the difficulties that her family goes through and all of those things, and we have chatted about some of those things, and she's not a particularly religious person, but when she walked through the door this morning, I was excited. I put my arm around her and told her how excited I was to see her and welcomed her to our church. And, and then I looked behind her and mom and dad are following, right? And, and one of the things that we started talking about uh, after services was I, I said to her, I said very specifically, I said, well, I expected to see you at some point because you said you would be here. And she said, no, coach, I came because there's something different about you. And all of God's people said, amen, we already knew that, Right? Something different about that fella. But what she meant was, there's something different I see. I don't know that I can explain it. I don't know that I can put my finger on it. I don't know that I can even define it in this moment. But there's something different. And I want to find out what that is. As Paul goes through this circumstance, people are watching. They are waiting to see how he responds. They're waiting to see how this all unfolds. They want to know, is there something different about him? Number one tonight, there's always purpose in suffering, specifically suffering, for the sake of Christ. Number two tonight, and this one is a little bit more technical, but I think it might open up some prison bars for you tonight. In this moment, we can see a second principle at play, and that is that the Apostle Paul laid down and claimed simultaneously rights that extended past the kingdom of God into his Roman citizenship. You say, well, why is that important? 
Again, I want you to notice that when Paul is arrested, he doesn't tell anybody while they're beating him that he's a Roman citizen. If he had, this story might have gone completely different. He would have never found his way into prison. The Philippian jailer might not have heard the gospel. His family might not have believed. But in that moment, what Paul did when he was first being arrested was he laid aside his Roman citizenship because he affirmed his citizenship in heaven itself, right? Because he was willing to do whatever God had in the works to go whatever road was necessary to affirm to do whatever God's will was in his life. That's a lesson for all of us to learn tonight, that there are times when we have to lay aside our rights. In fact, I would argue that most of our life is a laying aside of our rights. Think of 1 Corinthians in chapter 9 as the Apostle Paul is dealing with men and women in Corinth who want to eat of idols' meat, and he says that there are some who are able to do so because they have a strong conscience and they recognize that idols are nothing, and then there are others with a weaker conscience who cannot do so, and he speaks to them about what they should and should not do, and then he follows it up by simply saying at the end of chapter 8, leading into chapter 9, that as an apostle he has laid aside his rights to eat of that meat so that his brother who does not have the conscience who can bear with it, that that brother might not be offended. He has laid aside his rights, his claims on authority so that the people would listen to him. Sometimes in our lives it's really hard not to want to claim authority, not to want to claim our rights because especially when there's an injustice taking place because we know we are entitled to them. It was not right. It should not have happened this way. Paul sets a great example for us in this moment of saying it's okay in such moments to lay aside to relinquish, to lay down your rights. But then, unexpectedly, at the end of the story, he goes back and claims those rights back. When the people come and say, you know, we're, uh, the jailer comes and says, I've spoken to the local rulers and authorities. They've said that you should be released immediately and they're really sorry for it. Let's get you out of here before anybody notices. Paul says, uh-uh, that's not going to work. I'm a Roman citizen. You better get their behinds down here and they're going to apologize to me right now. We're going to bring this out into the public. i got to tell you, I thought about this a lot this week, and I thought to myself, if I was the pastor in that moment, I'm not sure I would have given this recommendation. Because after all, I could point to lots of Scripture that show that, that as believers, we're supposed to live as peaceably among mankind. And do you really need that apology, Paul? Do you really need for them to come down here and acknowledge what they did to you was wrong? Do you really need for all of that to play out in public? Why not just put the matter aside in private? But Paul does the opposite. And I'm going to assume for a moment he knows more than I do. And rightfully so, right? And in this moment, what he does is he actually reclaims that which he previously set aside. What in the world could we learn from that. Well, I'm going to give you a suggestion tonight, and I hope this maybe breaks some chains for you, because there is real-life practical implications to this, applications to this. And that is this, that what is in play is in some ways summarized in the struggle between 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, where we're told not to take our brothers and sisters into court because we do not want to defy the gospel and our desire as believers to seek justice in the human authorities and rulers that God has placed over us according to Romans chapter 13. Let me make it even simpler than that. 
you have an egregious error that happens to you in your life. As a believer, do you have a right to see that error corrected? That is a citizen of America. Do you have a right to see that error corrected through the authoritative systems in place? That's the real life application. I'm not asking you if you should sue a fellow believer or even a non-believer for that matter. I think there's some open room for interpretation there. I'm not asking you if you should sue to try to get money and become a rich millionaire. Let me make this really practical. A couple of years ago, one of our members got in in an unfortunate, tragic accident, and, and it has caused him to not be able to work anymore. And he called me as this was working its way through workman's comp and all of that, And we sat down over lunch, and he said, Pastor, I'm a very new believer, and I don't know what to do about this. He said, they're asking me right now how much money I should accept, how much I would be willing to accept, and I don't know the answer to that question. He said, I suppose, given the insurance policy and all those things, I could request maybe a million, maybe even $2 million, because, you know, that's what the insurance would cover. But I don't know if I should or should not do that, What is your advice? What would you have said in that moment? What I said in that moment was I said, I believe that just because you're a believer does not mean that you have lost or you are no longer entitled to all of the benefits of the law, the legal system that we're now under as American citizens. With that said, I don't believe you should be extravagant. I don't believe that you should ask for more than is just. But I believe it would be proper and good and right For you to consider what is just and righteous in this moment. Because you have not ceased to be a citizen of the country just because you are a believer. Does that answer become problematic for you? This is a real life issue. And yet, Paul gives us the answer to that question in this moment. When he appealed to his Roman citizenship, are you ready? What he did in that moment was he used the authoritative and political powers that God had placed in his life. He used them toward his advantage and he claimed his citizenship of Rome without ever laying aside his citizenship in heaven. Therefore, I would argue, beloved, to you that sometimes it is right and just to make your appeal before those institutions which God has placed in your life, according to Romans 13, that God has placed in your life. So, there's a lot here in this little story. There's the principle that we always hear, and that is that God has a reason for whatever you're going through. And then there's the second, which is hard, but it's so important, so crucial, and I hope it gives you some encouragement tonight. Maybe it helps you answer a question about what you need to do. And that is that just because you're a citizen of heaven doesn't mean that you've lost your rights to your citizenship here on earth. Those citizenship rights here on earth should never be in conflict, should never get in the way of your citizenship in heaven. I want to be clear about that tonight. It would be wrong in such a moment to be like the ungodly and to request to seek more than what is just. That would be wrong. That would be unchristlike. And by the way, if the rulers and authorities rule against you, we should respond in Christ-likeness, which is, are you ready? 
to simply take it and trust the Lord's care. But, but, what Paul showed us in this moment is it is possible to be a believer in Christ and still appeal, use your citizenship where you're at, appeal to the powers that be according to God's providence. I hope that's good for you. I hope that's liberating. And maybe I hope it answers some questions that you might be struggling with tonight. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you so much for tonight, for the opportunity you give to us to gather together in this place and study your word. And what I appreciate most about stories like this is they point us toward simple truths and complex truths. They point us to things that are real life applicational. And I believe that was your stated purpose when you had your apostle write that all of your scripture was written, breathed out, inspired by you, and is profitable to make us complete, perfect, ready for every good work. Tonight my prayer is that you would use this story, this infamous story we've heard a thousand times before, and maybe break down some strongholds, maybe even break down some questions about what is our ability, what are our obligations, what are our rights to live as citizens of this world and citizens of heaven simultaneously. And as believers, my prayer would be that our citizenship here would never be in conflict with our citizenship of heaven. And in such moments, when we need to appeal to those powers, those institutions, those authorities that you've ordained to be over us, that we would do it in the example of the apostle in this moment with a spirit of Christ-like reverence and humility but seeking justice for this is right. We love you. We give you the praise. I pray that you'd bless these dear people for their faithfulness tonight. In Jesus' precious name, amen.